The opinions expressed in the Palace of Glittering Delights are mine and mine alone. No one would be stupid enough to hold them. The things discussed in the Palace of Glittering Delights may lead to spoilers if you have not seen the topic of today's episode. There may also be occasional ranting and swearing. Don't say I didn't warn you. A long time ago, in a galaxy very, very near, I sent Marvel Comics a pitch for a series of books called Web Spinners, Spider-Man Through the Decades. Clearly ripped, (coughs) clearly inspired by the then-current In The Trades from DC Comics, Superman in the 40s, Batman in the 80s, that kind of thing, I felt that if any character deserved this treatment, it was the amazing Spider-Man. Marvel, more fool them, didn't take me up on it, but Aaron Henley mentioned just such a book in a post on Facebook, and this got the wheels turning again. What stories would I put in just such a book? Or, as has turned out, series of books. So far I have covered the 1960s, the 1970s, the 1980s, and the 1990s. So, by the laws of linear time, for this final volume, it's the noughties. As may have become apparent, lovely listener, each era of Marvel Comics has its own crosses to bear, and the noughties were no different. After being mishandled terribly by its owners throughout the 90s, Marvel filed for bankruptcy in 1996, and the comics were in freefall. Mismanagement, creative fallout, and sloppy editorial decisions meant the once mighty world of Marvel was in disarray. But, as a wise man once said, when you've got nothing... You've got nothing to lose. So, in 2000, Marvel, in a last-ditch attempt to bolster the floundering line, turned to Joe Quesada and Bill Jemis to save Marvel Comics. Both men had precedence in marketing and comics, and both men approached the job with gusto. Nothing was off-limits. New printing techniques, a different approach to lettering and subtle computer colouring were all introduced, and creative pitches that in any other era would have been too off the wall were given a try. Not all of these were successful. The lowercase lettering in the comics is god-awful, and just ask the Punisher how being an angel worked out for him. But when you chuck loads of stuff at a wall, some of it's just not going to stick. Quisada and Jemis hired new writers from the indie comic scene or from Hollywood, were often arrogant and abrasive and really didn't care who they pissed off. And yet, it worked. Despite their bullishness, both men did salvage Marvel. And without the Quisada Jemis era, we wouldn't have had a company worth billions of dollars at the box office, nor would they have been of interest to Disney, who now own Marvel Comics. With regards to Spider-Man, Quisada saw a number of problems, mainly that the book had moved too far away from what it once was. At the same time, he acknowledged that the relaunch and Chapter 1 hadn't really worked. For further details on those, see the last episode. Quisada decided a new approach was needed. Immediately, Quisada hired writer Paul Jenkins and artist Mark Buckingham to work on Peter Parker Spider-Man, the secondary Spider-Man title of the time. They made their debut in issue 20 in June 2000 and immediately made an impact, crafting sweet, touching character-based stories, often told in one or two issues. 
Cusada then focused on the main title, Amazing Spider-Man. After allowing outgoing writer Howard Mackey to wrap up his storylines, Quasada tapped Hollywood writer and producer J. Michael Straczynski to write the strip. Straczynski had written a few comics before, but was primarily known as the creator of the groundbreaking science fiction television series Babylon 5. Straczynski and Quasada both agreed to keep John Romita Jr. around as artist. The first half of the 2000s is not without controversy, but it's fair to say that Straczynski and Jenkins rejuvenated the Spider-Man line of comics. And this wasn't limited to just the main books. A new line of comics, the Ultimate line, was launched, in which writer Brian Michael Bendis and artist Mark Bagley would retell Spider-Man's origin and early days from a more modern perspective. This series wouldn't just retell the Lee Ditko material, though, as that was thought quite correctly, to be the main failing of Chapter 1. This line would start from the assumption that Spider-Man was a new character, being revealed for the very first time, and the stories and setting would be modern and up-to-date. Ultimate Spider-Man was, at first, a great success. Over the decade, many other Spider-Man titles would launch and crash. Try as they might, Marvel couldn't convince the readership that the Spider-Man comics that weren't amazing were important, and without the casual readers, they floundered. Marvel decided to counter this in 2007 by not making three different Spider-Man comics, as they had previously, but rather have Amazing Spider-Man ship three times a month. This remarkably cynical move actually worked, initially, and this new era for Spider-Man, although again somewhat controversial for reasons we'll come to later, was also a success. So with this embarrassment of riches, you'd think picking stories from this era would be easy, right? Wrong. Quisada initiated a new policy. All stories were to be five to six issues in length, as this meant that they could easily be collected together as trade paperbacks, and thus Marvel could flood the bookstore market as easily as they had the comics market. Trade paperbacks used to be for special stories, the best the medium had to offer. No more. Now Marvel could just slap a cover around any old six-issue arc and call it a graphic novel. Many of these stories weren't really worthy of the name, and this new way of writing means picking issues for a collection such as this one is really difficult. But I'm going to give it a go anyway. Firstly, one of the ways I went about doing this was looking at the covers on the website Mike's Amazing World of DC Comics and using this as a memory aid. From there, I created a long list. I read the comics and then whittled that down to a short list that you've primarily been listening to. However, another Quisada initiative was to create covers that were merely movie posters, standard and rather stock images of the hero doing hero-type things. Rarely did a cover actually reflect the interior stories anymore. Now, one could cynically speculate that this was because quite a lot of Quisada's hires had other, better-paying jobs, and as such, a fair few Marvel comics of the era would start shipping late. Covers that didn't reflect the interior could be used on any issue, without any problem at all. Of course, that's only if one were being cynical. However, it meant that but just by looking at the covers, it didn't really trigger any memories. And whilst reasonable as posters, they're really quite boring and unreflective as covers, and only J. Scott Campbell's work really catches the eye. What also doesn't help is the naughty's predilection for having sometimes as many as five different variant covers. 
The second way of doing this was, again, to look at the major developments in the strip over the decade and the significant creators. And this was a lot easier in the first half of the noughties than the second, because after Civil War, which again we'll come to later, the Spider-Man series suddenly had a different creative team every month, or so it seemed, but all working under one editorial vision. The first issue for inclusion was pretty simple. The best place to start anything is at the beginning, and the start of J. Michael Straczynski's run, Amazing Spider-Man issue 30 from early 2001, is as appropriate a start as any. Despite being the first part of a six-issue arc, this opening issue works as a statement of intent from Straczynski, with a clearer focus on the character of Peter Parker. Taking his cues from the influential work of Frank Miller, Peter's inner monologue is at the forefront of the issue, and whilst other writers would use this technique to lesser effect, it really worked for Peter, who is an internal character. The art is latter period John Romita Jr., and therefore more Marmite, but the advanced colouring techniques work exceptionally well in giving the art more depth than ever before. The story sets up new developments in Peter's life, such as his new job as a science teacher at his old, now decrepit, high school, and the new characters Ezekiel and Morlan. As the Morlan series went on, Spider-Man would learn of the totemistic nature of his origins, and this storyline in its entirety is as fine a representation of that subgenre of Spider-Man story, the Spider-Man must fight a villain who outpowers him immensely, as one could find. Peter Parker issue 35 from November 2001 was typical of the kinds of stories Paul Jenkins and Mark Buckingham were doing over in the other titles at the time Straczynski was relaunching Amazing. If it were up to me, this book would mostly be Paul Jenkins' stories. More than any other writer of the time, Jenkins eschewed bombast and did low-key, beautiful stories that emphasised character. Sure, he had to pay the piper with four- and six-issue arcs featuring Venom or the Green Goblin, but his best material was in his shorter one- and two-part stories. This issue, Heroes Don't Cry, is one of his very best, and arguably up there with the kid who collects Spider-Man as a classic Spider-Man story. The most off-concept thing about it? It doesn't even feature Spider-Man. Instead, the story focuses on a young African-American kid named LaFrance. LaFrance has it tough, a junkie mother, a family that's trying to help, but is hampered by the system that is supposed to protect kids, and a social services system that really doesn't care. LaFrance, like many of us, loses himself in the exploits of his hero, Spider-Man. It's a tearjerker of a story, but also, ultimately, uplifting and encouraging. If you've never read it, seek it out. But because you've never read it, that's why I've included it here. Ultimate Spider-Man 13 is here as a representative sample of the title, mainly because it was too big a part of Spider-Man's publishing history to not include Ultimate Spider-Man was launched as a modern, hip version of the character. At the time, this was considered a big risk, as Chapter 1 had flopped magnificently, despite chasing the same goal. However, where Chapter 1 came across as being written by an old guy who had no idea what teenagers were into anymore, Ultimate avoided this by tapping indie crime noir writer Brian Michael Bendis to write the series. With established pro Mark Bagley as artist, the series launched to much fanfare. Ultimate was a hit out of the gate, although I always felt that taking seven issues to tell the origin was a bit much, but it did sum up the approach the series would take going forth. 
I liked Ultimate Spider-Man just fine, but often felt that the main problem was that Peter was really clumsy with his secret identity. This issue is symptomatic of that. It's 22 pages of 15-year-old Peter Parker discussing his origin with 15-year-old Mary Jane Watson, and, for some reason, this was greeted with huge rounds of applause from the readership. Me? I thought it spectacularly missed the point of the character. Peter Parker has no one to talk to. That's part of his character's anguish. To give him an attractive girlfriend who knows his secret makes him a different character. And I guess that's true, to an extent, of the Ultimate Universe. He's a different Peter Parker. Given my druthers, I wouldn't have included an issue of Ultimate at all, but I am professionally looking at this as giving the wider scope as possible to the broad church that is Spider-Man stories. I acknowledge, therefore, that Ultimate Spider-Man is important with the inclusion of this issue. Another reason to include it is it displays all of writer Brian Michael Bendis' quirks in one issue. The dialogue is repetitive and real. It reads far too quickly, and you're left feeling you've had an appetizer and skipped out on the main meal, but that, again, is representative of the series as a whole. As to why I picked this issue, well, that's relatively simple. There aren't really many other single-issue stories. It also shows Marvel's tendency to start phasing out the secret identities, something the movies would embrace wholeheartedly. One of the biggest developments of the relaunch was the resurrection of Aunt May. In one of the dumbest resurrections ever to appear in comics, a hotly contested title, it turned out that who we thought was Aunt May was in fact an actor who was so committed to the role she actually died as part of Norman Osborn's scheme to make Peter think Aunt May was dead. Whoever this actor was should have got an Oscar, because I can't think of any actor in real life who has ever literally died because their character did. Anyway, because bringing May back and doing nothing with her would be stupid, Straczynski decided to have May discover Peter's secret life. He had an issue with her and Peter going over this change to their lives, but because continuity wasn't Straczynski's strong point, it was left to Paul Jenkins and Mark Buckingham to tie up any loose ends over in the other comics, and also to take a look back at some of the sillier moments in May and Peter's shared history. Peter Parker issue 50 from January 2003 was entitled And Here My Troubles Began and had May and Peter discuss these past events such as May almost marrying Dr. Octopus and shooting Spider-Man. It also had some really touching moments such as May's realisation that Gwen's death was something Peter had really been bottling up ever since it happened due to his inability to really sure what it felt like. As with all of Jenkins' stories, it's the character moments that shine. More than in any other era in recent times, Straczynski and Jenkins nailed Peter's acerbic and inappropriate sense of humour. But in Buckingham, Jenkins had an artist who could draw funny moments as well, with some gags sold purely on Buckingham's way with a facial expression. His homages to other artists throughout the story are lovely as well. May learning Peter's secret should be a big moment, something the recent Spider-Man Far From Home botched and is worthy of inclusion. But I picked this story over the Straczynski one for one simple reason. I like it better. Amazing Spider-Man issue 491, or issue 50 of volume 2, is by Straczynski and Romita Jr. and is another in that subgenre of Spider-Man stories, the Slice of Life issue. Straczynski excelled at these. This one centres around Mary Jane and Peter, and re-establishes their relationship after it had been callously tossed aside by the previous creators on the book. 
Doom Defer sees Murray Jane and Peter reconnect after a series of comic misadventures where they kept missing each other. This being Peter, the reunion at an unplanned stopover in Denver Airport is interrupted by a terrorist attack on Doctor Doom, an attack thwarted by Spider-Man and Captain America. Reuniting Mary Jane and Peter was another Straczynski development, and, all credit to him, he managed to write them as a convincing couple, not the idealised Hallmark Channel version of a marriage scene in the 1990s. This is a really good issue, focusing once more on character. Straczynski's dialogue is top-notch, and Peter and MJ's heart-to-heart, despite the constant interruptions, well handled. The re-establishing of the relationship and indeed marriage between Murray Jane and Peter was an important development in the strip, and that's why it's included here. If the first half of Straczynski's run was re-establishing Spider-Man and Peter Parker as characters with their own agency, as opposed to simply reacting to whatever big plot was happening around them, the second half was about shock value, pushing the envelope and placing Peter in the wider Marvel Universe. I don't know that it's a coincidence that after artist John Romita Jr. left, Straczynski's run took a turn for the worse, but that's certainly the case. Now, Romita Jr.'s work had evolved significantly since his early days, and wasn't to everybody's tastes, but it suited the story Straczynski was telling, gritty, down-at-home, mostly New York-based adventures. When he left with issue 509 in 2004, suddenly the stories changed. I have no idea what was happening behind the scenes, whether that be creative disagreements or just a desire from the writer to try a different approach. But within a short amount of time, a few stories came along in quick succession that stunk out the room. Sin's past cocked up prior writer's storylines with a story so grossly out of character for one of the main protagonists, it's still seen as controversial today. This was followed by The Other, another gross OTT horror story that, whatever its merits or demerits, just didn't seem like a Spider-Man story. This, in turn, was followed by Civil War, a mass intercompany crossover led by a terribly out-of-character and dreadfully written seven-issue miniseries full of awful dialogue and stiff art that saw Spider-Man back the wrong horse in the Superhero Registration Act. With his identity known to the world and forced on the run after seeing the acts for the suppression of freedoms they were, Spider-Man was at his lowest ebb. The lead-up to the events of Civil War are represented here with Amazing Spider-Man issue 529 by Straczynski and Ron Garney from April 2006. I singled out this issue for a number of reasons. Once Civil War gets going, the issues are really all one big story with no real breather, which made coordinating with the other Spider-Man comics quite tough. This issue is the calm before the storm, setting up Peter's mentor-student relationship with Tony Stark and his deal with the devil, figuratively, although that would become literal later. This issue also introduces a new suit, and those are always a big deal. Another reason was to show the difference in Straczynski's writing in the latter half of his run. Now, again, I have no idea what behind-the-scenes shenanigans were taking place, but in the first half, not only was Straczynski seemingly having more fun, but he also wrote denser issues. This issue reads really quickly, and not really in the same way that some of his other issues did. It was around this time that Amazing became more of a Brian Bendis book, and this was something that all Marvel titles seemed to fall foul of. Somebody at Marvel really took a shine to the way Bendis wrote, and this seemed to become the house style across Marvel as a whole. I felt this was a good representation of that and the direction the book took during Civil War. 
Whilst Amazing Spider-Man focused on the fallout from Civil War and had Peter, Murray Jane and May on the run, the other titles had to dance around the raindrops to make sure they were still telling fun stories that were not contradicting whatever happened in the main title. It was left to Friendly Neighbourhood Spider-Man, yet another Spider-Man title of the time, written at that point by Peter David, to examine what the reveal that Peter was Spider-Man meant to his supporting cast. His best issues were the ones that really focused on this idea, such as what his high school students thought of the notion that the teacher was Spider-Man, and bringing back Deborah Whitman to finally have her confront Peter for his flat-out lying to her that he wasn't Spider-Man way back in the early 1980s. The best issue of this type was issue 23 from October 2007. Fighting Words, written by David with art by Todd Nock and Robert Campanella, has Jonah Jameson and Peter finally confront their issues in a no-holds-barred conversation. Yes, a conversation. Well, almost. Some punches are thrown, but overall it's a chance for Jonah to tackle his most irrational hatred, i.e. that of Spider-Man. Now, my main issues with Jonah and Peter is that people try to create a relationship between Jonah and Peter that is almost that of a surrogate father and his son. But that's not in any of the text. Hell, it's not even subtext. Jonah is Peter's boss, that's it. Still, finding out Peter is Spider-Man would have been something that would piss Jonah off. And it seems weird that we had to wait until Civil War was nearly done to see the ramifications of this. Apparently Marvel had no plans to even show Jonah's reaction until a fan asked Peter David, which gave him the idea for this issue. It's not quite the home run it should be, largely because it doesn't quite mind the characters as much as it could do. More could be made of the amount of times Jonah has paid someone to kill Spider-Man, for example. Still, for seeing Jonah and Peter finally hash it out, albeit briefly, this one makes the grade. With Civil War done and dusted, Spider-Man leapt straight into the next crossover one more day. See, Straczynski had done such good work convincing even married sceptics like myself that a married Peter and MJ could work, that as a reward, Joe Quizard decided he still wanted it gone. The result, a four-part dreary story in which to save May's life, again, Peter and MJ make a deal with Mephisto, the devil, as I alluded to earlier, that would undo their marriage in exchange for saving May. Now, there are many problems with this, but whatever, it was done. Was it worth it? Well, that's up to the individual reader to decide, but the upshot of this was Brand New Day, yet another new era in the life of Peter Parker. Now de-aged to about 22, Peter Parker was no longer married, and more importantly, had never been married. Any stories you may have read to the contrary were all products of your fevered imagination. Peter and MJ weren't married. They simply dated and lived together. Sure, that makes total sense. Anyway, this era also saw Harry Osborn resurrected, for the traditional no-good reason, and some new characters introduced. As I mentioned, Marvel now published Amazing Spider-Man three times a month, meaning the reader no longer had a choice in buying Amazing, or Spectacular, or Web of, or Sensational, or Friendly Neighbourhood, or Oh My God, Not Yet Another Spider-Man title. You had to buy them, all of them, to get the whole story. Now, sure, they've been doing this for years, so at least they were being honest about being money-grabbing bastards. 
To keep up with the schedule, new editor Steve Wacker brought in a rotating cadre of writers, namely Mark Guggenheim, Zeb Wells and Dan Slott, with other writers like Roger Stern, Bob Gale and Mark Way joining in every now and again. Artists would also rotate as required. I would only include the opening story in this collection, as well as the two-page update to Peter Parker's status quo. The other two or three page backup strips are all merely teasers for what is to come later. This is arguably a suitable inclusion because of its placing in the history of the character, as well as emphasising the desire Marvel had to wipe out some of the publishing history and backstory. In many ways this is a shame, as it means Peter no longer has a continuous, unbroken fictional life, rather his adventures now have some cut-off points. As a story, in and of itself, this wouldn't crack any best-of books, as it's all set up with no payoff. Peter is also often mischaracterised, especially at the end, where he's finally losing his temper with Jonah over payment is clumsily set up, just so Peter can be hated by the Bugle staff for causing Jonah's heart attack. The brand new day era, alongside quite a lot of the 90s stuff, frequently had writers somehow mishandle Peter, sometimes to the detriment of him as a character. He was often unlikable and sometimes abrasive, that's true, but his unlikability was always tempered with a level head. We knew why he was acting as he did, so we related and understood, but he was never really petty or selfish beyond a few flashes of irascibility. In this issue, he is unlikable, petty and selfish, often at the same time. Still, it's another important moment in the history of the character and as good an introduction to this brand new era as one could need. Over the years, Peter's supporting cast had been through almost as many credulity-breaking events as Peter himself. One of the mainstays through the years had been Flash Thompson. Flash started as Peter's high school tormentor, the irony being that as much as Flash couldn't stand geeky Peter Parker, he idolised Spider-Man. After high school, Flash and Peter weren't exactly friends, but minor disagreements aside, they came to an impasse. It was heavily hinted that Flash was also in love with Gwen Stacy, but she made it clear she only had eyes for Peter, and this may have been why Flash signed up to fight in Vietnam. Obviously, the NAM was phased out over the years, and Flash was simply referred to having served in the army, but additional layers were added to Flash, such as his alcoholism, his abusive father, and his belief that he was one of those guys that peaked in high school. Peter and Flash did eventually become friends, with Peter and Flash even being roommates for a short time. The loathsome reboot reformatted Flash as nothing more than a bully after decades of character development, and Flash was once again a two-dimensional cipher with no direction. Flashbacks by Mark Guggenheim, with art by Barry Kitson and Mark Farmer, and published in December 2008 in Amazing Spider-Man 574, tried to change all that. The story was an in-depth analysis of Flash's time in Afghanistan, inspired by real-life events concerning US Army medic Jeff Urin. It's a beautifully researched, incredibly moving story, wonderfully drawn by Barry Kitson, and one of the finest war comics I've ever read for treating the subject seriously and honouring the people who serve. I bagged on before about how I absolutely loathe superheroes in war stories, especially World War II, but give me a good war comic, something real, and I'm there for it. This is one of the latter. Guggenheim's story isn't a gung-ho propaganda piece. It's heartfelt and moving and as affecting as the best of Garth Ennis' work in the genre. 
as with Peter Parker, Spider-Man issue 35. Spider-Man isn't even in this issue, and yet his influence, his values, and his beliefs are all over it. As a comic story, it's massively underrated. As a Spider-Man comic, mostly ignored, but as a heartfelt character piece, it's unsurpassed. I would also include the text piece by editor Steve Wacker that told the real story behind the story. Next up, a change of pace, and yet another in that subgenre of Spider-Man stories, Spidey gets trapped under rubble. This is a little different, though, and worthy of inclusion for a number of reasons. Amazing Spider-Man issue 578 and 579 was a two-part story, and yes, I'm breaking my own rules again. My gaff, my rules. Written by Mark Wade with art by Marcos Martin, Unscheduled Stop gets the nod, not only for the great story, another one of those that really uses New York to great advantage, but the art of Marcos Martin, a great artist who I really thought would have a longer run on Spider-Man. The fact that he didn't just means we treasure the stories we did get all the more. I would actually present this as a whole, as the two parts don't really run for much longer than the many double-sized issue I chose for the 90s volume. Peter is on his way to see Aunt May when the subway train is on is targeted by the shocker, who has been hired by a noted mobster to ensure the occupants of said subway car don't make it to his trial. However, the shocker didn't reckon on Spider-Man being one of the commuters. What follows is a tense, claustrophobic story, well written by Wade, that emphasises both Peter's brains and his fortitude as he struggled against overwhelming odds to rescue everybody. As I pick the stories for these collections, I do pay attention to important events, creative teams and significant moments, but there also must be a place for just damn good stories, and this is that. Brand New Day had its problems, but when the right creative team were in place, this era did deliver pretty solid stories. The frequency of the delivery model meant that some were better than others. Too much of anything, after all, isn't necessarily a good thing. But every now and again, Marvel got it right. We'll conclude this volume and this project with Amazing Spider-Man issue 600, which saw print in September 2009. The actual issue was a quadruple size special, but for our purposes, we're best just sticking with the main story, Last Legs by writer Dan Slott and artists John Romita Jr. and Klaus Janssen. This is still a feature-length story, but is included here for its importance in the character reaching 600 issues, but also for being able to do stories that somehow challenge and alter the characters. In this issue, not only does Dr. Octopus return to bedevil our hero, it's with a new vigour. Having suffered multiple beatings over the years, Ock finds himself unable to heal, thanks to the radiation sloshing around his body. To that end, he takes it upon himself to take over New York, but in a more digital fashion, solving traffic issues, blackouts and the like. But he's distracted when he sees his former potential bride, May Parker, marrying another man, J. Jonah Jameson's father, J. Jonah Jameson Sr. What follows is one of Slot's best issues, a knockdown, drag-out, full-on romp that is both funny and fun, but also in ways we didn't suspect at the time, setting up a superior future. Romita Jr. and Jansen do a decent job on the art, and the characterisation is top-notch, but another reason for including this is to once again show that Spider-Man's life never stands still. 
There are new women in his life, a new job, a new place to live and life-changing events, all of which show us that the future is never set and the past is merely a springboard. Issue 600 is a worthy way to close this fictitious collection and this project. This has been an, an eclectic collection covering a tumultuous period in Spider-Man's life. I hope this collection, fictional though it may be, has provoked fun thoughts in your heads as well, lovely listener. As I mentioned, the great and not so great stories you may not have read, stories you may want to revisit, and perhaps even stories that made you question my sanity. Hopefully I've reminded you why Peter Parker is still the best character in comics. His adventures may not always speak to us. They may not always be the best comics ever made. They may not always reach the highest highs. But they try. They strive. They do their best, even as they sometimes falter. A bit like Peter Parker. And Marvel, if you're listening, I am available to do this project for real. Greetings, guys and ghouls. I'm the Invisible Dan Cologne, and this is The Monsters That Made Us. Join Monster Mike Manzi and I on the last Friday of every month as we celebrate all of the spooktacular characters and films in the Universal Studios' classic monster series. From the Phantom of the Opera to The Creature Walks Among Us, we sink our teeth into all the gory details as we dissect the films that gave us some of the most iconic movie monsters of all time. The Monsters That Made Us is brought to you by the Cage Club Podcast Network. For more information, head on over to cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me. Okay, as I was putting this episode to bed on the 15th of August 2021, in preparation for its release on the 16th of August 2021, I was preparing to do so without any email, which saddened me. I was terribly sad. But at the last minute, somebody arrived, cape fluttering in the breeze, tights, uncomfortably tight around certain areas, swept in and saved the day, providing me with an email for the end of the show. For what would the show be without a final word from you, the lovely listeners? Yes, the irredeemable shag flew in on his way to saving the world from some stuff. I don't know what he does in his spare time. Reads on the beach, apparently. And he dropped me this mighty missive. Hey, Andy. Hey, Shag. Just wanted to drop a note about your recent Web Spinners episodes. I'm rubbish at leaving feedback regularly, so I apologise. Oh, I'm rubbish at it as well, even though I regularly ask you lovely people to leave feedback for me. I do occasionally drop by Facebook and Twitter and say shit there. And the Fire and Water podcast, of which you are an illustrious part has one of those um, feedback things for each show on a website. They're always good. They're always fun. So I occasionally drop by there as well. Uh, I wanted to say what an awesome concept this was and what brilliant execution. Oh, well, thank you very much. I didn't start reading Spider-Man until the 80s, so I'm familiar with most of the early stories, but delivery was still so engaging, and I was right there with you on the 80s and 90s stories. Bottom line, just wanted to say thank you for these wonderful episodes. I can only imagine the amount of prep work, but as this listener can attest, it was worth it. The Irredeemable Shag, the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Well, um, very, very much gratified that you seem to get as much out of it as I did. Um, with regards to the prep, yes, the prep was exceptionally hard. Uh, looking back... 
The 60s and 70s were the easiest, because it's, you know, the year I grew up reading, even though I'm not old enough to have been alive in the 60s. Um, but that those were being reprinted quite and were quite accessible as I was reading comics in the late 70s, early 1980s as a wee lad. Uh, the 90s and the 2000s were the most difficult, largely because, as I said in those shows, just because of the sheer amount of content and the good to awful ratio. So, obviously, I think in the 90s, I ended up with more double-sized issues than anything else because Marvel realised that they want the big developments to happen for anniversary issues. And all of a sudden, 375 became an anniversary issue and 25, issue 25, became an anniversary issue for some titles. And you're like, why is 25 an anniversary? 20? I can get behind 20. 21? Very definitely. 25? What's special about 25? But the 90s was probably the year I had the most fun picking stories from. The 2000s were the most interesting in terms of rereading because it's amazing how little I've gone back to reread the post-2000 stuff. Um, largely because the reboot and Chapter 1 are god-awful and memory hasn't made them any better in retrospect. When you go back and reread them, they were awful then. They're still awful. J. Michael Straczynski's early good work was largely undone by the latter third of his run, which is tainted by Sins Past and the other, neither of which are particularly good. And, I mean, fair play to him and Peter David for turning the, the cesspit that was Civil War into decent stories. And I stopped at 2010, for those of you that are interested, because I don't think 2010 through 2020 has had time to really bed in yet. I always think when you're doing collections like this, time and perspective are perhaps more important than people sometimes give them credit for. So um, if I was going to look at 2010 to 2020, I would probably do it sometime down the line. But an awful lot of 2010 to 2020 is basically just Dan Slott and now Nick Spencer. Dan Slott pretty much wrote Spider-Man for an entire decade. And a vast chunk of that decade is superior Spider-Man. So I don't know how you'd approach 2010 to 2020, or how I, or how I let me get my teeth in, would approach 2010 to 2020. Maybe that's a thought experiment for somewhere down the line. Anyway, glad that you enjoyed that as much as I did. Uh, thank you very much, Thurta Shag, for swooping in and saving the day. Hey Kids Comics at virginmedia.com is the email address for you to email in if you want to be like Shag and have your thoughts read out ineptly by me. But I'm going to take a couple of weeks off now, have a break for the summer, and I'll be back in September with a bunch of new episodes, none of which I have even thought about yet. So, you know, could be anything, couldn't it? Because that's what the show is. If you still want to hear me, um, me and Michael Bailey are still doing the Overlooked Dark Knight, which is great fun, huge gobs of fun to be had on that show, simply because like this, we, we can talk about whatever we want within the, the parameters of it being Batman, obviously. 
And I'm joined by Bill Robinson, Paul Spataro and Dave Pascarella, and occasionally J. David Wheater, over on Toon Trek, which is the new Star Trek show that we're doing now that Listen to the Prophets has finished. Join us for both of those shows, because it would be lovely to have you along. It's always lovely to have you along. It's nice to not talk to oneself. People think you're a bit strange if you talk to yourself, although you don't really know anymore if people are talking to themselves, do you? Because they've got their earphones in. So you used to be able to avoid people who talk to themselves and now they're just on their phone. So, you know, who can say? Take care, get jabbed, so that we can actually go back to going to comic conventions and concerts and travelling. You know, I've missed that. So do all of that so that we can get out and see each other again. And, you know, maybe if the stars align, we'll meet up somewhere down the line. Take care. Everything's going to be okay. And I'll see you real soon. Goodbye.